0: The views expressed by your hosts, Austin and Landon, are not necessarily the views of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Backbone Planning Partners is a marketing name for registered representatives of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Now let's lean in as Austin and Landon connect with this week's Tycoons.
1: Good afternoon, Tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson from Phoenix, Arizona joined by my co-host, the best in the business, Landon Mance from Las Vegas, Nevada. Landon, welcome in, buddy. Thank you, and beautiful goatee there, sir. (laughs) I'm I'm going way back. I wore this goatee for about 10 years like this, and, and as you know, I've had just a normal beard for about 10 years, so I tried something new over the weekend. We'll see if it lasts throughout the Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, before we jump in and get started and introduce our guest for today, if today's the first time that you're listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, this is a small business podcast or a radio program that's put together by small business owners for small business owners. Landon and I are both small business owners. We're also uh, from families that are multi-generational entrepreneurs. And so business and small business really runs through our our veins, day in and day out, we believe truly that the backbone of the American economy is the small business owner, and so we uh, put together this podcast to highlight those small businesses, give them an opportunity to share their story and, and uh, get their their message out there, so to speak. So today we are excited to have definitely a tycoon in the in the studio or on the show with us today, Amy Castoro, President and CEO of the Williams Group. Amy, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me here, guys. It's an honor. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, we're, we're excited to uh, to host this show. We, You know, Landon knows you uh, more than I do. We've had conversation, or at least one conversation, um, mm-hmm. but we're excited to, to learn about you personally as well as, uh, as your business. So before we jump into the business side, Amy, why don't you tell us a little bit about you personally? Tell us where you grew up. Tell us about your family life. Tell us how you kind of got to where you are today with the Williams Group.
2: Oh, thanks. Uh, I grew up in Long Island, born and raised, and a little place called Bellrose Village. It's kind of right in the center of Long Island. I'm one of four, and phenomenal place to grow up. You could hit the beach if you went left or right, so no complaints on growing up on Long Island. Actually, if you went north, too, and south, now that I think about it. (laughs) so
1: um, (laughs) it um, is an island uh, yeah
2: (laughs) funny how that happens (laughs) Um, so love that and I live in Princeton New Jersey now I my husband is here with our two kids who are now grown adults uh, 22 and 25 and I lived all over the U.S. I spent some time with the Walt Disney Company out in California Whereas part of the Disney University learned a lot about creating a culture and how to put the right people in the right jobs. And from there, I moved to the Midwest, lived in Wisconsin for a little while, where I worked for Grant Thornton, supporting small businesses and helping them figure out what their compensation studies should look like and whether or not they should buy or sell or what a succession plan should look like. And then while I was getting my coaching certification, I was on a call with one of the groups that I was studying with and a gentleman said what he did for a living. And I kid you not, at that moment, I can even remember where I was and how I was holding the phone at that point and said, wow, I didn't see this coming and I didn't know I'd be doing that. So about a week later, I flew out to meet Roy Williams, who's the founder of the Williams Group. And that was about 11 and a half years ago. I haven't ever looked back. It's, it's just a joy to do the work that we get to do every day.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. So for those listeners who have no idea what the Williams Group does, why don't you describe to us quickly what the Williams Group does day in and day out and, and really what made you have that epiphany at that point to say, you know what, that's, that's what I want to do.
2: The tagline for the Williams Group is we prepare heirs what we do is we help families have the conversations that will keep them out of the limelight, much like what you see in Succession these days. So if you've seen the HBO series Succession, it's actually pretty hard for us to watch because although it's heavily dramatized, it's based on some pretty fundamental themes that we see recurrently. Roy Williams came out of the NFL, and when he came out, he looked around and saw a lot of his peers losing their wealth. But what broke his heart is they were also losing their families. And that just didn't make sense for him. And as he researched that phenomena, he realized it has a name called Shirt Sleeves to Shirt Sleeves in Three Generations. And there's a lot of statistics to support it. Roughly 30% of businesses make it to the third generation, but nobody ever thinks that's going to be them. So when Roy did some groundbreaking research over a 20-year field study He figured out why that is and really helped an entire industry come into existence that didn't focus on assets, but helped family business leaders figure out that the more time they spend on preparing family relationships, the more likely their business is going to make it to the next generation. So for me, we know that when families stay together, their businesses stay together, their philanthropy can actually change the world. So it's a little bit of a Trojan horse for some of us, but we, uh, we're we pretty excited to get to do this work because there's very few things that are as fulfilling in other than teaching people, families, how to work better together.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's crucial, right? The re- The reality is, you know, maybe it's one person that started the business or maybe it's two brothers or, you know, whatever it is, and then it becomes father and sons or father and daughters or, you know, a combination of all of that. And then all of a sudden they have kids and you're thinking, my goodness, you know, it expands every time you got all these people. First of all, the question is, can they get along, which is the crucial part, right? And then are they growing the business well enough and preparing it for that transition to the next level to where it's big enough to sustain with that many people who are potentially involved two and three generations down the line?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, growth and sustainability of a business and its impact on the economy rests on the very fine line of family tension and relationships. So the, the studies that we did revealed three main drivers of what keep families and family businesses together. And the, the first is never much of a surprise. It's trust and communication. Do I trust that my brother can lead us into the next generation? Does dad or mom trust that the next generation is able to run the business the way they think it should be run? The second, and that was representing 60% of the failure rate. When we talk about families being successful in transition, it means that they are maintaining family unity and they are maintaining control of the assets. So when they don't, 60% of the reason for that is actually trust and communication. The next big reason, number two, is air preparedness. Do they, have they bought into the roles that they play within the family business? Are they able to speak truth to power when they need to? Um, Do they feel like they have some degree of ownership or autonomy in terms of the roles that they're playing? Do they have a shared sense of of, um, purpose? Do we feel like we're going in the same direction? And then the third piece we found, which represented 10%, had to do with aligned family values. So we recently worked with a family where one brother was a a devout religious person, uh, was a fisherman by trade, didn't wanna take any of the family assets, and he was supposed to be working in a foundation together with his sister. So in a way, they had an investment business and a foundation. His sister, on the other hand, was a declared atheist, did not work, was more than happy to use family assets. And so just by the looks of it up front, you'd say, wow, here's a two sets of very different values. How are they ever going to run something together? How are they going to make decisions together? And after a series of meetings and learning some new ways to really get a deeper understanding of each other, what was revealed was that they were both committed to having the world be a better place, specifically saving lives. The brother wanted to do that through missionary work, and the sister wanted to do that through a suicide hotline. Very different focus, and yet very similar. So once they could understand each other's perspective and really appreciate where they were coming from, what seemed like very divergent sets of values were actually very similar. So they were able to to make decisions more quickly as a result of aligning, not necessarily agreeing. It was a very powerful process for them. They went from really leading very different lives to about 2 weeks ago I got a call from their mom and the sister had asked her brother to be the guardian of her unborn child that's about to be born. It's a big difference. What we've learned through this work, and I don't think comes as any surprise, is that family conflict tends to be circular and sustained by a repetitive sequence of interactions. So people don't just inherit a family business or inherit assets. They also inherit these communication strategies. Mm And it's the, it's the matriarch or the patriarch that takes a moment to enable the family to learn new ways of working together. Because frankly, the business grows, there's more complexity involved. They need a new set of skills to be able to really take care of those uh, family relationships.
3: So Amy, um, hi, nice to see you again. <laughs> I, I was fortunate enough to uh, do a, three half-day training with uh, Amy and uh, one of her colleagues. And we just kind of got the just a, a sneak peek into their world and the great work that they do. So that was uh, just an invaluable experience, Amy. So um, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, really, really excited to have you here. So my first question for you.
2: You're welcome, Landon. And there will be a test at the end of this.
3: uh oh uh maybe austin could take it for me i don't know Uh, (laughs) you know amy so i i think primarily you guys work with larger family enterprises uh but i think that the the problems that you help solve the walls that you help take down uh, the the communication strategies that you guys put in place, the issues that you see. I mean, I, I think that a family that settles in a state, you know, with $100,000 or $100 million, I think they, they, they face the same set of, of issues. Um, you know, I mean, you're very aware of what Austin and I do in our, you know, in our day jobs. I, I can't even count how many times we have seen this happen in our own practices where a matriarch or a patriarch passes away and wealth is being distributed and um, just all total chaos ensues. You know, okay. people just turn into different people when uh, this stuff starts to happen and they start to. You know, add some zeros to their uh, bank accounts, or they potentially see zeros being added to their bank account. So, at at the highest level, Amy, I mean, why why do why does wealth transfer typically fail?
2: You know, Landon, I really believe it's because the accent is often on the wrong syllable. What I mean is that everybody's paying attention to governance. They're paying attention to preservation of the capital or of the business. They're paying attention to taxes. They might even have a great succession plan in place. But all of that really isn't worth the paper it's written on unless the relationships are strong. The dominant variable in succession of a business is family relationships. And if families aren't taking the time to learn how to have conflict be more of a generative force? How do we we work through a difficult conversation and both feel like we're safe in that? Um, How do we really make a, a powerful offer or a powerful request? How do we even say no in a family business, right? So these are fundamental communication techniques or strategies that most of us are blind to. It's like the fish swimming in the water. We don't see the impact of that until we really work with somebody to say, okay, let's take a time out and do a little work on how we're actually working together. How are we coordinating action? How are we managing our mood? Right? What's what's the best way that we can make sure our relationships have the highest level of trust possible? And how do we do we observe that so that it's something that we can manage and repair? So in the families that are successful, the family leader's first priority is building trust. It's encouraging open communication. It's fostering shared values. It's what everybody calls the soft stuff, but it, it's what forms the hard foundation of a business being able to be successful. I've been at this for 11 and a half years, and recurrently, I see the same thing. I was just on a call today. We had a father and a son. The father thinks that the son is going to take over the family business, real estate business. And the son is like, You know what? I like it out here in Los Angeles. I'm really not excited about moving to DC. And the father is like, Well, for you to take over the business, you're going to have to be here. So it looks like a massive impasse. And the future of the business, you could say, hangs on that, their ability to come to some alignment there. Fortunately or unfortunately, through COVID, they had to learn how to work remotely. And so now they're having different way, different conversations about how they can physically be together and work remotely at the same time. But the fundamental stumbling block for them to be able to figure out how they're going to have the business go forward was that the younger son wanted to, he didn't feel like he mattered. He felt like dad had such tight control on the reins of all the decisions that he felt like every time he spoke up, it was just, sure, if it's not your way, then it's the highway. So he was picking the highway. So that's that's not a strategy or a structure. That's a relationship conversation. Not- In other families, they have a great succession plan where it's all laid out, but Then there's a triggering event. Maybe somebody has a heart attack or maybe somebody decides they want to retire. And suddenly they think the transition is going to be really smooth. But that's where everybody's like, oh, you want to retire now? I was just about to retire myself. You can check with the 25-year-old. Maybe he's interested, but he's on his way to law school. So there's nobody's having a public, honest conversation about what's really going to happen here into the future.
3: Yeah, one of the one of the biggest takeaways from the um, from the training that I did with uh, with you and Scott was just getting this clear understanding of what you guys refer to as. um, As cordial. No, the um, oh, my gosh, Amy, the uh, assessment versus the um,
2: assertion. Yeah, assessments
3: yeah. versus assertions. Yeah, yeah. That 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 is something that has stuck with me, and I've actually talked to, I've, I've mentioned that in several client conversations that have family businesses, and I think that is so interesting because we, we we make these assessments or judgments or opinions, mm-hmm. you know, but we we believe them to be to be fact as we move into the future, right? Right. And I I think that is just such an interesting thing to think about when you, when you um, are exploring these, these types of impactful, important conversations. So my my question is, when when you're brought in, and you are, you are uh, brought in to help a family to prepare the heirs to give themselves a better shot at a successful transition of a family business or or a transition of family wealth. What would you say, or maybe the the one or two opinions or judgments from the uh, you know the people at the at the top of the hierarchy when they are looking down at their at their heirs.
2: There's so many, Landon. I was on a call today where the distrust was so strong and it was a really wild cycle where the son felt like he really didn't want to get into a conversation with his dad about the estate plan because he didn't believe his dad was going to follow through on it. For him, wealth was always used as a hammer or as a as a weapon. And so he didn't want anything to do with the family estate or the family business. So he distrusted. He he had the assessment that his dad was too controlling. And then the dad has the assessment that the son is angry and untrustworthy because every time the son has a conversation with him, it blows up. So they don't know how to have a conversation where it's safe enough for them to be honest. So the distrust is just gaining mass. In most families, they keep that under the rug. They never let that surface. We call that cordial hypocrisy. So the 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 assessment is if we don't talk about it, it'll go away. That's one assessment. The other assessment they have is I've got an estate plan. I've got a succession plan. And that's going to do the talking for me. So I don't have to do anything about that. And both of those assessments are ungrounded and likely not true because that's just their opinion. So the facts would point in the opposite direction. Families that aren't talking about succession plans or estate plans are the ones that are most at risk. Because every single family member who reads that estate plan or that succession plan is going to interpret it from their own experience and form their own opinions. And now we've got this sea of of assessments, a sea of opinions, and nobody knows how to align them. Nobody knows how to talk about the ones that are slightly out of alignment. I think another one that I see is that kids think that they what their mom and dad told them is what they told everybody else. So they believe in this fair, they believe in equal, not necessarily fair. And mom and dad are trying to be fair, not necessarily equal. So that, that can miss, that can cause a big miss. There's a lot. I could go on for hours, maybe days on that one, Lyndon. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think... Yeah, Landon and I could certainly go on with our own examples of that as well. I mean, it's, I I can think of three or four with clients that we're working with right now, where some of the things that you're dealing or have mentioned, these families are dealing with, and some of it's large sums of money and large issues, and some of it's smaller by, by comparison, right? Mm -hmm. And I just, I look at it and I think, you know, the reality is at the end of the day, the family relationships need to matter more anyway, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you see estranged families go through all these sorts of things, you know, over the years. But if, if it came right down to it, if you're sitting in a room with any set of parents, they care more about their kids getting together and doing things together after they're gone than they care about what happens with the money. Yeah, it's just, it's unfortunate to see it. I mean, I, I met with a client two weeks ago and I didn't even know this. We'd had family meetings, parents are deceased, we've distributed the wealth, we've, you know, everybody's gotten their portion. But when it came down to it, at the very end of the distribution, when they did that final tax return and the cost of the tax return was divvied up among the four siblings, that was enough to cause discord, yeah. With a couple of the kids, to where they now have not spoken for eight months, yeah. Because yeah. they felt that the the trust, you know, the trustee was too loosey goosey with who they hired, and they paid too much for the tax returns. Wow. So, I mean, we're among four hundred people, so we're talking about hundreds of dollars, not even thousands, mm-hmm. right? And they haven't spoken for eight months because of the discord that that created. So it's just, it's all about that trust and communication and being willing to express your concerns and your feelings and to talk through it rather than letting it fester.
2: Exactly. And that situation you just talked about, it's unlikely that the real issue is the taxes. Although it appears to be that, there's usually some other elements that are moving around in the background where the that event just spikes it and they say that's it I'm not talking anymore. So the the real gift of the work that we do is we teach people how to manage and repair trust not like what Landon was talking about like a global assessment. I can't tell you how many families we have the oldest son who's in charge of all the assets or he's the trustee And then the daughter is like, you know what? All they ever did was cheat in Monopoly. Why in the world do I think they're going to be able to manage my estate, right? So that's an old conversation, but still very present for her. And what she has is what we call a global assessment in the domain of trust. So we say, well, how do we break that down so that it can be observable, so that trust is now something we can work with? Rather than be affected by all the time, so we teach them: Is that a? Is does she not trust her brother in his competence to be able to manage it well? Does she not trust his sincerity, like he's not going to do what he says he's going to do, or does she not trust his reliability to always come through when he's going when he says he's going to do something? So the in that in another instance, we had a a son who was in charge of the family business and. He was in charge of who was going to get what distributions. And we were called in because the sister was ready to go to an attorney over it. She didn't think that he was being fair. So, somewhere in the meeting, we said to the sister, How is it that you learn? And she said, What do you mean? She, he said, Well, how do you learn like when you're trying to understand something? And she said, Visually, I usually need pictures. So, we said to the son, Can you draw pictures of how the money flows in this business, how, where it comes in? what happens when it's in the business and how you decide that it goes out. I kid you not about an hour and a half later, she, a huge sigh of relief. She said, I had no idea. I had no idea of all that you were managing and what was behind it. She can see now that his intentions are good and that together now they know how to have conversations and how to figure it out. But it was just a misunderstanding and a global assessment on her part, like He never makes any sense when he has a conversation with me. So I quit. Off to the litigator, she goes. So it's really just that's really about breaking down the the communication structure in a way that she could understand and rebuild the relationship. The biggest mistake I see heads of businesses and, and families make is they have the assessment that if they tell their kids about the succession plan or the estate plan, it's gonna derail their motivation. And what happens is we end up with next gen who are in their fifties and still don't have a clue. And then that day comes when the music stops for mom and dad, but the kids have no idea what's expected of them. They don't know what the plan is, but everybody else involved, like the estate planner, like the financial planners, like the CPAs, they know their job, they know the other people on the team's job, but these, these next-gen family members, the offspring, have absolutely no clue. So it's really unfair. I'm not suggesting they need to say how much or even when, but I suggest there is a conversation about, here's what I'm thinking, here's the plan. And then the family can have a conversation about, well, if we are going to have distributions or if we are going to have you work in the business, then what's the standard, right? Remember I talked about one leg of trust is is competence. How do we declare that you're competent to come and work for the business or to even begin to receive assets? And that can be a co-design conversation. That can be, I need you to work outside the family business for two years. I need you to be competitive with outside candidates in the business. I need you to show me you can save over X amount of dollars before we start giving you money to manage. So as a family, they can come up with those. And the the offspring or the next generation, they come up with some great strategies for that. Really exciting stuff. We Philanthropy yeah, is always... Yeah. In the- <clears throat> it sort of shows up in philanthropy too, where mom and dad think, oh, these kids aren't going to want anything to know about philanthropy. Or... Another thing I hear is mom and dad say, we're giving it all to charity. We're not going to give any of it to you guys. And in some ways, it's a little bit of a threat where the next gen is like, oh, is that how you're manipulating me to stay in line? Really bad idea. We suggest that if you are going to give it to, to charity, let them know that's your value structure. It's not because of anything they did or didn't do, but it's something that's important to you, not about them, but have the conversation before the music stops.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I honestly, I think it really comes down to regardless the communication of what your expectations and desired outcomes are, right? So, and it doesn't have to have anything to do with the actual money. It's, these are our values. This is what we believe in strongly. This is what we expect our family to continue to do after we're gone. This is, you know, we've raised you a certain way for a reason. And it it just opens up that opportunity to explain to them the way that you would like things to be. And to even as a parent, you know, I put put myself in this position, understanding that I've got adult children now, you know, my kids are 21 and 18 Mm -hmm. and, and having them understand what I want them to be able to do in the future. but. Also, it gives me an opportunity as a parent to say, you know, I think I kind of missed the mark on this. It's an opportunity for me to kind of unload and say things that I didn't do appropriately and I wish I would have done better. I would like to to work on this going forward so that you understand where I'm coming from so that you don't make the same mistakes with your children. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you just there's so many different dynamics that become compounded with wealth But the reality is, it's still about the personal relationships and the values.
2: No question about it. Everybody says they want to have a legacy. Whether they're intentional about that or not, they will have a legacy. That legacy is going to be built on relationships. Those relationships are built on communication skills. And in most families, they inherit the communication skills right alongside the opportunities. Or other resources. And so it's when the family takes a pause and says, you know, let's capture what we're doing well, much like what you were saying, Austin, and let's capture what we could be doing even better without blame, right? We're gonna draw a line in the sand and say, going forward, I need you to be more accountable when you make a promise. So, so often the people we work with are coming from really very, Modest means. They grew up with almost nothing and they become entrepreneurs. We worked with a family where there were eight kids, and the dad was an amazingly successful entrepreneur. He came to us and said, You know, the cost, the purpose of my creating this wealth was to give my kids a better life than what I had. And I would say 99.9% of them say that. The cost of giving them that better life was my availability, was my time with them. And I feel like it's starting to show up in their adult relationships with me. So we go and we check in with all the kids and he's not far off. You know, they're saying things like, you know, you said you'd come to my games and you never came to one. You know, I'd call and try to talk with you about something that was happening in my life It was really important to me. And you had me talk to your secretary instead. So it's kind of like dad was well intended, maybe didn't see the magnitude of that. And the kids were like, I'd rather have my dad than a multimillion dollar home. And so what we were able to do in that family really right out of the gate was teach them how to have open and honest conversations in a safe way, right out of the gate in the first meeting. We had everybody go around the room and say what they were hoping to get out of the meeting. And when somebody went off on a tangent and sort of kept it out of the emotional domain, we'd bring it back. And finally, when we got to the youngest person who was about, maybe he was 21 at the time, he was in tears. And we said, what's happening? And he said, this is the first time I feel like I have a real family. I used to go to my friend's house to find out how to have honest conversations but I feel like we're on the right track here. And needless to say, the whole family was crying at that point. <laughs> but the point is many families, especially families of wealth, somehow train out emotional connection. That it's not safe to show up in a sincere way. In other families where they're trying to grow wealth, competition is important. Everybody sitting around the table is competing. Who's got the best idea? I worked with a family where the youngest son became an attorney because everybody else was an attorney. That was the only way you could belong to the tribe. And about five years after being an attorney, he had ulcers, he was unhappy, just miserable. So finally, he started to pursue fine art enough in a way where he became a collector and could quit being an attorney. But the, the moment he came back to his family and said, Guys, I don't want to do this anymore, the only reason he was able to do it is because his fine art collection was significant and some level of respect could still be held in the family because they were money driven. So it was when he was able to point to that and say, there's more than one way to be happy and successful, they could accept him and he could relax and he was no longer the black sheep of the family. So it's it's possible, but it usually takes an outside facilitator, somebody who can say things to mom and dad that the next gen doesn't feel safe to say yet. We have a saying that's not very flattering, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Maybe it's because I come from growing up on an island, but um, the fish usually rots from the head. And what that means is mom and dad are setting the tone. They're setting the tone on what's safe to talk about and what isn't. And they're doing the best that they can. But the moment they they hold up the mirror and say, okay, these patterns, these communication patterns aren't working. We're not not able to make decisions quickly in this business. We can't rely on our relationships long-term. That's the moment when they can say, all right, let's bring somebody in and let's clean up the foundation so that we have more confidence in the structure.
1: All right. So let, let's take a quick break. We've got a quick call to action that we want to hit here real quick for our listeners. And then we'll come back and talk about some things that we can do to become more prepared and, and make sure that there's a successful wealth transition. Hey there, tycoons. Austin Peterson here, co-host of Tycoons of Small Biz. If you think you have what it takes to be considered a tycoon and you're wondering how you could become a featured guest, please follow and then message us at Tycoons of Small Biz on LinkedIn. We'd love to have a conversation with you to see if it is a mutually good fit. And if so, we'll get you scheduled for an interview. If you're unsure about being a guest on our podcast, but are contemplating selling your business over the next few years, and you'd like to know what your business is worth, please also follow us and then message us on LinkedIn for your no obligation, informal valuation of your business. We look forward to hearing from you and thanks for listening to the Tycoons of Small Biz podcast. And now back to today's program. All right, welcome back, tycoons. We're here with Amy Castoro, president and CEO of the Williams Group. And I'm going to let Landon jump in and ask her the hard-hitting questions because she put him on the spot. He failed the quiz miserably, could not come up with assessments and assertions. And it's his time to come back.
3: (laughs) You know what's funny, Amy, that you just held up? Check this out. Ready?
2: Yeah.
3: Whoa!
2: Okay, open book right here on my
3: desk this is uh the williams group the wealth transfer quiz obviously i only have one copy of this but i actually took a picture of this and sent it to a client and had them take it and uh, send it back to me um i I will tell you that uh, they failed miserably miserably so uh anything—that's a
2: good thing, Landon. That's a good thing. At least they're looking at it, right? Right. Now they see.
3: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So I I, I love it. It's a short little quiz, but it it helps to just kind of uh, yeah open your eyes to some things that you probably aren't thinking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, we could read some of those out, Landon. Of those questions, I'd say the ones that are the most important. Well, really, they all are. Those 10 questions are based off of the research that we did. And so they're validated against being able to track, is this trust and communication? Is this air preparedness? Or is this alignment of values? So even just taking the quiz starts to give people the language they need to start shedding some light on this whole area of how do I prepare the family? I've done a great job preparing assets for the family, even a business for the family, but how do I start to prepare the family for those assets? And so one of the the questions that I love on there is our current wills, trusts, and other documents make most asset distributions based on air readiness, not their age. And that one, most people will say, Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think it should be their age. But what we're finding out is that age is a really poor indicator of readiness because for everybody, that's a different number. I have clients who are 60, 65, and they're still not ready to manage because they have a different interpretation of what ready is. So that's, that's one of those great questions that I think is worth, if you ask anything, that's, that's the one to start. And then the follow-up question we would ask is what does ready look like for mom and dad? What do they think ready means? And then what do the kids think ready means? It might be two different things.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One of the things I, I find really interesting about, um, you know, kind of this preparedness work that you guys do is, is you talk about a, a family wealth mission statement or a family values, you know, mission statement. So um talk to us if you would just about kind of like what 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 is that and what why is that important in the work that you guys do.
2: Yeah, the mission statement is kind of the guide rail. So I'm a terrible bowler. Worst bowler you I mean not kidding. Like you have to watch mouth guards required when I bowl. Terrible. But they put these things in the in the gutters where i could get the ball all the way down i don't know what they're bumpers they're called bumpers Bumpers. so the mission statement is like bumpers it gets everybody on the same page moving in the same direction and creates a context for them to be an individual inside the collective one of the biggest friction points is that the parents think the kids will never be ready, even though they're 30 or 40 years old. And so this conversation about a mission statement helps the kids start to see, well, what is my role in all of this? How can I be a contribution? We worked with a family where the dad started, came from nothing, built a business, sold it. Three fabulous kids all got married, have kids of their own. He put them up in beautiful homes, bought them beautiful cars and said, guys, belong to two country clubs because you'll have an even better network that way. So when we met all the kids, they all talked about something called the walk of shame. Like, What is the walk of shame? Every month they can't afford their lifestyle. They got to go back to dad and say, hey, can you help me cover this cost? Can you help me cover that cost? And so what was missing for them is a conversation about what is the use and purpose of this wealth? Is it for you to give it to me and then me to spend? Or is it for us to be able to live a lifestyle that you never thought possible and there isn't any guilt in that? right? How do we be wealthy in an aligned, responsible way? One thing that emerged from that is the, all, the kids all said, we, we'd love to be able to give back. And the dad said, well, for hundreds of years, we've been given to the zoo, and that's what we're going to keep doing. And we said, so what would happen if we had a little conversation about how these kids could be a contribution to the wealth? Maybe they can't grow it, but maybe there's a way they can help the legacy be continued and sustained. And we said, how much do you want to give them? And he said, 30000 10000 each. Have them come back in 20 minutes and tell me what they're going to do with it. So for the first time in their lives, they're like, wow, we we have an opportunity to do something here. And one of the kids said she wanted to paint a school bus in bright colors, fill it with grocery bags, drive it to the poorest neighborhood they could find. And if a kid could come on the bus and learn three things about nutrition, they left with a bag of groceries. And dad's like, wow. And here we've been feeding tigers all these years. The next kid comes in, she was a substitute teacher. She said she had heard about a program in Boston where the police department mentors at-risk youth. So it keeps them from joining the gang. She said, I'd like to see if we could do a pilot program right here, right in our neighborhood. The dad had all kinds of connections and he's like, okay, but I'm not going to let you hang out with felons. So we're going to need some help on that one. She said, all right. The third one, he made a living selling things on the internet like hot sauce. And he said what he wanted to do was figure out how to deliver food from the restaurants to the homeless shelters using Uber and Lyft. And the dad's like that, now that sounds like a business, <laughs> but, but they figured it out. So my point is that very often a family wealth mission statement will create a context where the next generation can see how they can be a contribution how they can step into what it means to be a Peterson or a Mance. And for very young kids, when that conversation is regular and happens like quarterly or annually, young kids start to figure out where meaning comes from. Oh, it's meaningful in this family to go to school. It's meaningful in this family to hold a job, even though you don't need one. And once they get familiar with this meaning, what's meaningful for them, they start to figure out their purpose. And now they're not living in the shadow of mom and dad who made great wealth and saying to themselves, I'll never get that lucky again. And odds are they won't. Instead, they're they're finding more meaning and purpose in their life that comes from this sense of what it means to be in the family, which comes from this, this family wealth mission statement. Wealth doesn't mean just money. It means networks. It means education. It means our identity in the community. We've had families that have lost all their wealth, but their last name opens doors because of who they are and they rebuild. So that that family wealth mission statement is an essential step because it, it has everybody rowing in the same direction, but you cannot get there if there's a lot of what we call cordial hypocrisy where it's not safe to say no. Like even in the succession, HBO, I think in one of the opening trailers, it said, when did disagreeing with dad become treason? Treason, And it's for a lot of kids right out of the gate, it feels like that. And even when they're adults and they have kids of their own. So um, the Family Wealth Mission Statements creates, creates a context for them to... Align, but you can't get there unless you've done the trust and the communication work. I'd say the biggest mistake families make is they think, oh, we're just going to build a mission statement. We'll be good. And that's just another level of governance, like an estate plan. We still have to do the work on how well are we working together? How do we make decisions? How do we disagree in a productive way? Yeah.
3: I feel like a lot of what you just kind of explained and described, um, you know, uh, kind of, kind of another, another word for it, or another approach is kind of avoiding entitlement, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so is, is that something that, is that something that comes up a lot in these discussions with, with, uh, the the heads of the family, or maybe even, you know, maybe with some of the, the heirs that say, you know, I don't want to. I, you know, I don't want to be a trust fund baby for my whole life, and I don't want to be. You know, I want to be independent. You know, I don't want to be dependent on this wealth that is being handed, you know, to me. So, is that something that comes up a lot? And I guess this, the follow up to that is: is there is there anything else that you guys kind of do specifically when you're working with families to to help them avoid that from from falling upon their family? Are there errors, I should say?
2: I think it's inherent. You know, it's really at the center. Like, what keeps moms and dads awake at night is, will my wealth unify or divide my family? And at the center of that is entitlement. And so the fa- the mom and dad don't trust that the kids are going to be able to responsibly manage the wealth, and the kids don't trust that mom and dad are going to have the distribution or the transition go well. So. You're spot on, but I have to say, in all the interviews I've done, maybe 5% fall in that hardcore trust fund baby place. Most of them are terrified that they're gonna end up like that. They don't wanna be that. And yet they're confused because mom and dad have them flying in private planes, mom and dad have them in beautiful homes, mom and dad say, do what you love. So, in many ways, The next generation will live what they learn. And in instances at a very young age where mom and dad are saying, get a summer job, save your money. It was a billionaire we worked with. He said he was out with his friends. They flew private. They ended up in a gift shop. The daughter, who was very young, said she wanted a teddy bear. He said, you know, let's see if you've earned your allowance by the end of the week. Then we'll come back and get it. And everybody's jaw hit the floor because it was like $20 but he's teaching a lesson. It's not about just getting it for families that have a tremendous amount of wealth. The conversation is, Oh, well, if we bring home another teddy bear, which one do you want to donate to the children's shelter? Right? How do we, how do we give and let go at this? How do we receive and let go? So these lessons can happen at a very young age. They live what they learn. We worked with another family where the daughter went to Africa. She could see how the elephants needed care. She came back, started a bake sale. That bake sale to save the elephants went on for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So she was learning how to be a responsible steward. That conversation, I think the useful conversation for parents to have with kids around entitlement is what does it look like for you to be a contribution What In what way would you like to see the wealth impact your life? In many families, I hear the next generation say, no more Christmas presents. My guys don't need anything. We're okay over here. Let me be responsible for what the kids receive or don't receive. So they're actually saying no. In another family, part of a mission statement, we do a glossary. And in almost every family, they say education is important. And so this conversation about education came up where the kids decided education means a four-year degree. It means a 3.0 GPA. It means coach tickets across the country. It means you've got a plan for why you're going in there. One of the kids had a child with a learning disability and she wanted to hire a French-speaking nanny. And they thought that's crossing the line. That feels a little bit like entitlement. If you want some funds for a special education program for your son, great. Let's have a conversation about that. And dad can carve something out. But as far as calling that education and what we mean by education, it sort of flies in the face of the values that we base that decision on, which was hard work, accredited, moving yourself somewhere. So in that instance, the kids were really protective of this idea of entitlement. And they're the ones, based on the mission statement, that said no. So that can happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the theme just keeps coming back to it, it's about the values, right? I mean, it's really not about the dollars. It's about the values. Yeah. And estate planning documents and you know, business succession agreements, all those kinds of things can be written with the values in mind, right? right? I mean, I, I'm not a billionaire, right? Right. Mm-hmm. I have significantly more wealth than my family had when I was growing up and my kids never knew what it was like to be poor, right? Mm -hmm. And so even me as not a super, super wealthy person, I have to deal with entitlement with my own kids and helping them to understand what's valuable and what's not and how, you know, how we should be looking at and viewing money and, you know, working towards certain things. The principles are the same. It's really about values, teaching them inside of our own family, raising kids who understand what's what's important in life. Yeah. And then the money doesn't matter.
2: No, uh, exactly. And that is the place to pay attention, Austin. It's never about the money, although everybody says it is. The other thing that I think is funny is parents don't think the kids know that they're wealthy. Right. That's another one of those assessments, Landon's, that this really usually pretty far off. Even though parents say, Well, we live such a humble life. How could they possibly know? And I interview those kids. I say, what's well, a ballpark of your parents' net worth? They go, Well, we Googled the size of the house. Well, we know they sold the business. Well, their income is public. Well, <laughs> um, we were the only ones mm-hmm. in the class taking vacations and coming back with a tan. And it was about fifth grade that I realized. Not everybody only has one house. So the kids sort of figure it out. They they have an idea. The question they're in is what's their responsibility with it? And for some that's really scary. So it is about the values, Austin, but it's also very much about the ability to have a conversation about those values. Because if the kids think they have to have mom and dad's values, no thanks but if they feel like the conversation is safe where they can express their own, then a funny thing happens. The funny thing is the kids think they're expressing their own values and mom and dad have their values. But in the end, they end up being pretty much the same, like the story I told earlier. We had a family where the dad didn't wanna distribute wealth because he was pretty sure the kids were not gonna support the Jewish Community Foundation. And when we got into a conversation about what was important to the dad about the Jewish Community Foundation, by the end of that conversation, each one of the kids said they'd give 10% of their wealth to it. Because it wasn't about the Jewish Community Foundation, it was what it meant to their father and what he meant to them. They'd never seen him cry before, they had no idea it was that level of depth and that they could get behind. So, yeah, the values there are about love and compassion and being able to express
3: that. Well, Amy, another uh, terrific, enlightening conversation as usual with you. But unfortunately, we uh, are very much out of time. Uh, just before we wrap things up here and uh, go our separate ways, for any anybody that wants to maybe dig a little bit, a little deeper into what you guys do, maybe track down your book or, you know, poke around on your website, what's the best way for for people to find you
2: guys? Thanks for asking, Landon. The book is available on Amazon. So you can see a bunch of reviews there and you can get a good sense of what that book is about. The website, thewilliamsgroup.org. And we publish a lot there. We publish probably monthly. We also have a regular blog that goes out real short. Um, But you can find a lot of material um, uh, just on our website. And you're wel- more than welcome to reach out to me, amy at We'd be happy to hear from you.
3: Fantastic. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. And uh, we look forward to staying in touch and maybe having you on the show again in uh, six or 12 months.
2: Oh, and that would be great. In Austin, I love the goatee. Keep that. It's <laughs> work.
3: <laughs> you heard it here, tycoons.
2: <laughs> All right, yeah, guys. You're,
3: you're batting care. one for two, Austin. That's not that's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Amy. We'll talk to you later,
2: guys. Happy
0: Thanksgiving.
3: You too. Bye bye.
0: You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, proudly hosted by Austin Peterson and Landon Mance.